Well, welcome to the Marty Minto Show podcast. I'm your host, Marty Minto, the informative voice for Christianity all across America. Official music on the Marty Minto Show podcast is provided by Apologetics, that Christian parody band. Check them out online, apologetics.com. Last three letters is T-I-X, apologetics.com. Well, another day that God has given to me to open up the microphone and uh, provide to you hopefully that which will be beneficial to you in your walk uh, with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, along with challenging others out there who may not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But uh, we're in the midst of a series here on the podcast. I'm not sure that podcasts do series. I'm not. It's kind of new to me, but uh, I kind of treat it like I did when I did my radio show. So I'm doing a kind of a series here, and I'm talking about uh, how to study and understand God's Word. And uh, we're in the midst of this series. There have been numerous uh, podcast recordings, and again, I want to encourage you, if you've not listened to all of them, please do so, because uh, one will go together with another, with another, and together they will form that which is um, useful to you, uh, the listener, when it comes to learning how to study and understand God's Word. As always, I remind you, that there are three uh, priorities here with the Marty Minto Show podcast, and that is to learn the Word of God together so that we can teach others and also defend the truth because in our days in which we live, and it's going to get worse, uh, we are going to have false teaching come out of the visible church. And more and more false teachers are arising uh, daily and speaking things and saying things that are just not true. Uh, I just had a brother in Christ uh, call me today just to say hey and check in on me, and he was telling me about a revival that is being done in uh, North Carolina, and a very young evangelist, quote-unquote, and he started out his message the first night by just kind of coming against and demonizing a particular group within Christianity about their doctrinal beliefs. And uh, it just amazes me because people say things quite often in ignorance, and they have no real understanding, no foundation to say what they're saying, but they they feel they have a right to, and so they spout out. And that's like sometimes, unfortunately, but true when we are listening to Bible teachers and preachers and evangelists, when they're coming to certain passages of Scripture, stories within Scripture, and they're saying things that are just not true. That's why this podcast, especially this series, is so important, uh, how to study and understand God's Word, because it's going to help us all, including myself, to have a better grasp and a handle so that we can rightly divide the Word of Truth. And you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. If there is a right way to divide God's truth, meaning to cut it straight, there's also a wrong way. We could cut it crooked. We, we can end up really just making a mess of what we're trying to proclaim and bring forward to someone. So I'm hoping that in the midst of this series, it will be helpful to you, the listener. I really, truly mean that, and I I just can't stress this enough. I was praying before I I opened the mic here today, and I I just really ask God uh, to take what I have before us today and use it for his uh, honor, for for all of his glory. Uh, This is important stuff. I cannot stress this enough. It's very, very important stuff. Well, 
I am going to go today to an area that um, is somewhat confusing to some people. And the reason why it is confusing it is because um, some folks don't understand uh, that there is within the pages of Scripture, not only as we look at it, God's holy word, we know that it comes from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, but also uh, just as we do in our normal day talking and conversation as we pick up a newspaper, as we read a book, as we go anywhere in the world when it deals with people trying to express and proclaim things to others, there is a use of language or the language usage within the Bible that sometimes we miss. We miss the importance of this, and we end up, well, we end up missing the proper interpretation. We end up missing what is important. Uh, we, we get the context all messed up because we're not looking for the right thing in the midst of the passage. Uh, we, as I've talked about before, we end up in quite often spiritualizing things. Um, we take Scripture and we interpret it to the point that it exceeds its extended meaning, or intended, excuse me, intended meaning, uh, with implications that God has orchestrated it, and, um, you know, we, we spiritualize things. We, we turn it into something it's not supposed to be. Or we don't recognize the use of certain language, as I just mentioned, within Scripture. And so what I want to do today, I want to share with you I want to say about a dozen usages of language within the Word of God that will help us to understand better as we are reading, as we are studying God's Word, as we come to that point of bringing forth not only what God said, but what He meant, uh, we're able to cut it straight. We're able to rightly divide the Word of God. Uh, Let me just give you an idea here for just a moment what I'm talking about. Uh, First of all, um, let's talk about, did you realize within the Bible, the pages of God's holy word, there is the use of what we would call hyperbole. Now, hyperbole is an exaggeration used for effect. It's really like an overstatement that is brought forward, and many people don't recognize this, but this this is of the utmost importance. Um, In... (laughs) Some people don't get this. Um, we use hyperbole quite often in our everyday language. We know that it is used as we read articles and books. Again, the usage is to exaggerate so that the effect or, or the overstatement is made because it, it can't, it's being stressed to such a degree that it helps people to understand the magnitude of what is being said. Now, there are some places within the Word of God that we have to turn, and I want to give you some examples of this because I think it's going to be very helpful to you. Uh, First of all, go to John chapter 21, verse 25. John chapter 21, verse 25. Now, here is a use of hyperbole, and I think as soon as I read this, you'll understand what I'm talking about. John chapter 21, verse 25. And listen very carefully um what is being said here and there were also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail i suppose that even the world itself 
would not contain the books which were written. So here you have a hyperbole, an exaggeration or an extension or an overstatement on a fact that Jesus did so many miracles that the world itself could not even contain the amount of books that would be used to write down all the miracles. Do you get that? Now, again, this is very important because hyperbole, again, happens quite often uh, within the pages of Scripture. Let me give you another one. Go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, I believe it is here. Uh, I just want to make sure because sometimes I mess up on my own writing. I'll be honest with you. I'm bad about that. But Matthew chapter 21, verse 21. So Matthew 21, 21, and let's see if we could, we could see the hyperbole or the use of hyperbole here. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. Now, this is hyperbole. And the reason is it is hyperbole because was there ever a mountain removed in the pages of Scripture? Did anybody have a mountain-moving ministry? (laughs) No. Um, Are we called by Christ to take mountains and, and, you know, get rid of them? No. The hyperbole here is the fact that we we have to focus upon, um, really, the focal point is on faith and how much faith we really have. Do we have the faith that is truly pleasing to God? Are we people who don't doubt? Um, And again, I don't know of anybody who cast any mountain into the sea. Jesus never cast a mountain into the sea. I don't know anybody else who did that. So the hyperbole, the use of language here, the exaggeration used for effect is to demonstrate the importance of having faith, the faith of a mustard seed, the mustard seed not being the smallest, but quite small, it's quite tiny. But if you have that faith of a mustard seed, if you had that faith and you don't doubt, you could say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it shall happen. Uh, And the truth of the matter is we know when it comes to faith, our faith is in God. We are trusting God to do. He is the object of our faith. God is the one who moves mountains. God is the one who does the impossibilities. But you see the use of language. But we have a a hyperbole, and I want to stress hyperbole because it's there within the Scriptures, and sometimes, quite often, people miss hyperbole. Not Not on purpose, but they just miss it. Uh, Let me give you another use of language, a simile. A simile is that which makes a comparison by using the word uh, such as or like. So such as or like. Now let me give you an example of that. Let me give you an example of a of a simile, and I was thinking of this when I was sitting here just before I I you know opened the mic and began to do the podcast here. If you go to Acts chapter two, you know the Acts chapter two uh, begins in talking about the day of Pentecost when they are all together in one place. But listen to what it says in verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Now, it doesn't say it was a violent Russian wind. It said it was like. There is a simile. 
So anytime you see such as or the word like, um, that is a simile. Now, along with that, and it's, they're kind of uh, twins in a sense, but you have metaphors. Metaphors is a sim- similar comparison, except that it omits the word like. In other words, it doesn't use it. And let me give you two examples of a metaphor. John chapter 10, verse 9. John chapter 10, and you'll find in the book of John there are quite a bit metaphors, but John chapter 10, verse 9, I'm going to go ahead and read it here as soon as I can get to it here. But John chapter 10, verse 9, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Well, what is the metaphor? He's comparing himself to a door, but he doesn't, it doesn't use the word like or such as or as a door. It's, he, he says, I am the door. Now, Jesus is not an actual wooden door or a metal door. He, it's a metaphor. It's a similar comparison. Let me give you another one. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Okay. And look with me, if you would, at verse 19. Luke twenty-two nineteen. And it says here, And having taken some bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, is the bread actually his body? No. It's a metaphor. Now, once again, throughout the Bible, there are many metaphors. So again, the difference between a simile, which again makes a comparison, but it uses a word such as as or like. A metaphor is a similar comparison, except that it doesn't use or it omits omits the word like. Okay, so those are three different types of usages so far that we find within the pages of God's holy word. Now, here's another big one. Okay, you ready for this one? This is called, and I and hopefully I'll get this right. Every time I try to pronounce this, I find myself in trouble, but it is called an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism or anthropomorphism. It is describing non-human objects as though they have human characteristics. So they're describing non-human objects as though they have human characteristics. Uh, For instance, anthropomorphic language is used in describing God. God is spirit, but it talks about the eyes of God, the hands of God, the feet of God, etc. That's just some of the examples we could use. But again, anthropomorphic language is used to describe non-human objects as though they have human characteristics. Hopefully that's helpful to you, but we see that quite often when talking about God, okay? But there's other usages, too, within the Bible. Also, we have the use of language of parables. Now, some have referred to it as parabolic language. Well, let me tell you what parabolic language is all about or what a parable is about. It's, it's language used to explain in human terms an eternal or a spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. It is used to explain in human terms an eternal slash spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. Now, 
this is one that we have to be very careful of because a lot of people believe that when it comes to parables, that Jesus spoke in parables because he loved to be a storyteller. And he loved to tell stories. And I've had people say, well, that's why as a pastor in the pulpit, I tell a lot of stories because Jesus was the greatest storyteller of them all. The problem with that is they don't understand parabolic language. They don't understand what the parables are truly all about. And I could tell you this, this becomes very challenging. And the reason why it becomes challenging, because what we do is we create something uh, from that parable that in most cases should not be created. Now, again, I, I cannot stress this enough. But Jesus talked about um, parables, and he taught about why the use of parables um, were being done when he spoke to people, because his, his own disciples questioned why he did so. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus makes it clear why he taught in parables, Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 13. Now, this may surprise you, um, and some people are quite surprised by what Jesus says here, but you've got to allow Jesus to speak and not yourself. But remember, parables or parabolic language is language used to explain in human terms an eternal or a spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Let me just stop there. Most people that I know don't like that verse because they're saying, okay, you're telling me that Jesus is hiding a truth from people that he doesn't want them to know about, so it is him speaking in parables. No, you're missing the point. Parables are only understood by those who have spiritual understanding, who have been granted and given by God what we would call by the Holy Spirit that understanding or illumination. Now, you'll find in the Gospels many times Jesus has to explain the parables to his disciples. The reason is simply this, without going into every detail, the Holy Spirit was not residing within the believers at this point in time. Though the Holy Spirit was at work within them and amongst them, they had Jesus. So Jesus ultimately, as the teacher, because even Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit would take what was from him and give it to the disciples. So Jesus tells his disciples quite often what the meaning of a parable was. But he is saying distinctively in this verse, he is saying you, it has been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. See, without the Spirit of God within them, Without the true teaching being brought forward by Jesus himself uh, in non-parabolic language, people don't understand. 
That's why so often when I hear people talk about parables and I hear pastors and Bible teachers teaching uh, on the parables, I see and hear so often mistakes being made because they are not really bringing the true picture of what the parable is all about. Again, the parable is language to explain in human terms an eternal or a spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. But people aren't going to they're not able to understand it. They're not going to be able to get it unless it has been granted to them to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Uh, and again, this belongs to, simply put, believers, those who belong to Christ. Now, with that comes, in, in, depends on who you talk to today. Uh, this one becomes, it goes along with the parable. And it becomes uh, very controversial, and you'll understand why in just a moment, because people like to talk about the use of language in an allegory. Now, if you don't know what an allegory is, an allegory um, is the use of Scripture by God to reveal a hidden meaning um, in the midst of a story, a poem, or a picture of what's brought forward on the pages of Scripture, people say an allegory, it's something that's in there. It's, it's something that's a mystery that is going to be revealed. And, and God himself, um, he uses allegoric language. But the truth of the matter is, if you speak to those who are very, um, well, well-grounded in the Word of God— Allegory is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, and, and I would agree with those folks, because in the Bible, is God uses normal language, the language of the people. Yeah, he, yeah, he does. We already talked about we have hyperbole, metaphors, similes, anthropomorphic language. We have the parables, but there is no secret uh, or hidden mysteries that, like, there is a level for people to obtain. And there are people out there that want people to believe this. And I was looking at this earlier, and I was troubled by it, because allegoric interpretation of the Bible is an interpretive method that assumes that the Bible has various levels of meaning and tends to focus on the spiritual sense, which includes allegorical sense, uh, tropological sense, which is the moral sense, and analogical sense, uh, which is opposed to the literal sense. So allegoric language would be opposing the literal meaning of a passage. And so a literal meaning of the passage, if, the, if it's parabolic language, then it's a parable. We have to understand what a parable is. If, it, if it's an anthro Pomorphic language or anthropomorphism being used, we have to understand that. But we have to take it at its literal meaning. So an allegory, again, this mystery, and there's a lot of people that hold on to this, that the Bible is mysterious. You can't really know it. There's hidden meanings here and in there. Uh, you have uh, numerology today, people studying the numbers and the, how many verses and all this and where words fall and all this. Kind of, they try to put together because God has a hidden meaning within Scripture. No, he doesn't. Um, God, when he brings forth his word, he it is brought forth in its normal language. When it's a hyperbole, it's a hyperbole. 
But once again, the parable is the only place that we know that Christ said it's been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, to know the truth, the eternal truth, the spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. And and that would line up with other scripture because a person who doesn't have the spirit of God, the person who's not born from above, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it's all foolishness. It makes no sense. Uh, they gain nothing from it because, once again, they, they their eyes aren't open, their ears aren't open spiritually. They can't understand. So I would agree with the people that are saying allegories are not in the Bible. It's not there. Now, there's others who argue that they are, but what's interesting in their argument, and I've looked at them as carefully as I can, but they're saying that allegory and, like, for instance, parables would fall underneath allegoric language. I disagree. A parable is a parable. It's not an allegory. And, again, we we got to be careful of this because, again, you have, you know, you have the story, you have characters, events, symbols, events, ideas. Uh, you know, I agree that allegory has been used throughout history and literature, Um, It has been used indirectly to express um, ideas. Um, It's been used throughout the history of man. However, in the Bible, there is no allegories. You have to understand it in its literal sense or meaning, which, again, that's why we're talking about use of language. Now, with that, too, I, I want to talk about uh, prophecy. Now, a lot of people don't understand that prophecy can, first and foremost, have a dual meaning. One could be dealing with, when we talk about prophecy, that which is present, but it also could be dealing with future events, and in most cases it does. But there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that are spoken in prophetic that have a dual meaning. They'll refer to a particular king or a kingdom at that time, but it also referred to Christ. It'll point to Christ and the coming of his kingdom, for instance. But also with prophecy, what we have here, I, I should define this for you before I go any further. Prophecy is ultimately a foretelling of something that is futuristic. It could be event. Uh, it could be individuals. It could be circumstances, it could be time periods, etc. And most cases, when we look at prophecy, it's a foretelling of something that is coming about. But prophecy also can be a telling forth of what has already been. Um, it's already been said by God. And see, this is where today there's a lot of confusion within the visible church. Because people are asking, um, can people have the gift of prophecy? Well, the gift of prophecy was something that was spoken or was given to them first and foremost by God. It originated with God. It was given to the prophet or prophetess in regards to uh, people, places, and things, events, the future. Um, It was given to them by God. It it revealed something that nobody else knew. Nobody knew. They they were told this is what what was coming about. This is what was going to happen. This is what was going to take place in their lives. And so today, if there is prophecy, I want you to think about this, then the Bible or the canon of Scripture is not closed. 
then we don't have all the Bible. We have, well, the main parts, but we're missing all these places where God is speaking to people today to reveal things that haven't yet come about, but yet they're not found in Scripture. And see, the problem is, how would you test the Spirit? How would you know if it's of God? Well, first of all, if it doesn't come to fruition, if it doesn't take place, you have a false prophet, which, according to God, if it's a false prophet, they are to be put to death. And I don't see anybody being stoned today or put to death for speaking something. And quite often we hear people say, thus saith the Lord. You know, God told me last night to tell you this. What I would say to you is that prophetic or that use of the gift of prophecy is not today being used. I think God has given to us all that we have, all that we need. What we have is the telling forth of what has already been and already said and done by God. And yes, we look forward to yet what has not happened by looking at the book of um, Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, etc., but we have glimpses and pictures, but even then we don't really have a complete grasp of what it is all going to be like. It's like Jesus is um, his Olivet Discourse. When he was on the Mount of Olives, he, he told his disciples what to expect. And as we read that, we get a glimpse of what it's going to be like, not only during their lifetime, but after their lifetime. And in many cases, either during or after our lifetime. But we don't have it all. But we have enough to know and understand what is going to take place. But when we are prophesying today, when we are prophesying in a Sunday school class or in, in a pulpit or in a small group, or I'm prophesying at Dunkin' Donuts, what I'm doing is telling forth what has already been said by God, what has already taken place. I'm not speaking something or foretelling something into the future that nobody knows about. And again, I, we could talk about more about this in depth. I won't hear on this podcast. I know some out there who listen who may be charismatic, Pentecostal. You may be upset what I just said, but I really believe that we have to look at this very carefully. But again, prophecy is used within the pages of Scripture. Another thing we find in the use of language is an analogy. An analogy is a similarity between like features of two things. Um, two things on which a comparison may be based on. Um, and, and I think we have to understand what that is. Like, for instance, I, I go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 14 uh, and 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I think I just mentioned this, but I'll read this again, and, and I'll give you a better understanding. And this is an analogy now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 and 15. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So the analogy here is someone who is natural or does not have the Spirit of God, who is not born from above, any individual who comes into this world in their natural state, not spiritual state, doesn't accept this thing. So the analogy here, you see the work, the similarity between 
like features of two things uh, which a comparison may be based. And that comparison would be to the natural, to the spiritual, spiritual to the natural. That would be an analogy. And we find many analogies used within the pages of Scripture. Let's go to another one quickly here because of our time, symbolism. Symbolism is the use of symbols to represent ideas, natural objects, facts. Um, it could be people or events, etc. And we find the use of symbols all throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Isaiah 32, 19. Ezekiel 32, 16. Read those passages and you'll understand the uses of symbolism. Now, um, symbols are big in the book of Revelation. Uh, and this is important for us to understand uh, because symbols represent persons, uh, facts of objects, of things that are events that are going to happen in the future, things that have already taken place. In, in symbolic language, we you have to be very careful with it because symbolism is, uh, you know, if we don't get it right, we could really create something that God never intended for it to be. And I want to stress this with you because I see this quite often, and I, especially going into the Old Testament or the book of Revelation, it seems to be a book at times that quite often is abused because people don't use the symbols appropriately that God is giving to them and representing these people, places, events in the future, etc., or even pointing backwards to the Old Testament. Um, and we create sometimes end-time scenarios uh, that don't exist. I mean, they, honestly, they're not a part of, of God's plan. We, we create something, um, an eschatology that was never meant to be, if that makes any sense to you. Um, another use of language is we find in the Bible of euphemisms. A euphemism is a figure of speech in which an offensive expression is substituted for one that's not. Let me repeat that. A euphemism is a figure of speech in which an offensive expression is substituted for one that is not. Let me give you an example. When the Bible talks about returning to the ground, it's talking about what? Dying death. When it uses uh, the euthanism lie with, it means to have sex with. You're involved intimately sexually when you're lying with. In the Bible, we have those who lied with, uh, laid down together with others uh, of, of their same kind, men with men, women with women. We have um, humans with animals, etc., but it uses language or speech which, again, um, an offensive expression is substituted for one that's not. And again, this is all kind of use of the value. Some would say it's kind of toned down, but we should be able to understand what it means, and I would agree. So again, you have these euphemisms within the pages of Scripture. You also quickly, uh, you also find within the pages of Scripture poetry. Now, poetry uses parallelisms, uh, which takes two phrases 
And um, they're joined together so that the second repeats the first with different words, or the second states the opposite of the first, or the second um, actually brings about a new thought. And we find poetry, obviously, in the book of Psalms. We also find it in the book of Proverbs. And so these two books of the Bible, we find a lot of poetry. So we got to understand that we have this uh, poetic uh, use of language. And quite often, too, this poetic use of language is also used um, in that which is musical, believe it or not. Uh, that which at times we have in the Psalms, we have some type of, of that which has been put together in, in musical form, but, but again, poetry is used. And so th- this is something that, uh, again, we're not going to take the time to get into right now, but if you begin to study God's Word, especially in the Psalms and the Proverbs, you'll begin to see this. Also, we have uh, apocalyptic language. Um, you have symbolism, you have figurative, you have uh, literal, you have that apocalyptic language which describes things um, that are yet to come. They are that which are futuristic. Um, they are spiritual realities, um, but at the same time we have figurative language that is used, um, but they're describing these spiritual things that will take place in events that are futuristic. Um, and that's why, you know, you hear about the apocalypse when we talk about the book of Revelation. And again, I, I want to just caution everyone, because in the book of Revelation, there is much reference to the Old Testament. As I've said to you before in other broadcasts, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So this is important to understand. This is important to know. But but again, um, you know, we we just gotta when we get into apocalyptic language that is being used, we gotta be careful. We gotta we'll look at it. Now, listen to this carefully before we close for today. I know I've given you an awful lot. I know I I've just given you burst of things. I haven't got into real depth into, them, and I don't mean to because. I'm trying to challenge you, encourage you to understand that when you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, there is the use of language within the pages of Scripture. There are things that are there that you have to be concerned about. Now, some would say, man, my goodness, next time I read the Bible, I'm going to be like my head's going to be spinning. No, I think as you begin to learn about these, it'll become more and more natural for you to see these things. Um, and again, you you, you got to look at them carefully. But at the same time, you don't have to beat your head over uh, or against the wall over them. But, you know, I, I think what we all want is to come up with the true biblical interpretation of the passage. I mean, that's what we want. We want to know what God said, and we, we have that, but why he said it. We want to make sure that the meaning is there, and it means what it means. We ourselves are not putting words into the mouth of God. We are not creating something that we have no right to create. So let me just give you these four key approaches, um, which really are primary rules of biblical interpretation. First of all, your observation. You look at the who, what, when, where, and why. You look at the facts. 
Second of all, when it comes to interpretation, words have meaning. You have the historical setting, you have the cultural, you have the literal meanings, you have the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. Uh, you, you need to understand that. You also have the evaluation. When you're looking at the context, you heard me say this before, context is everything. You get the context wrong, you get the passage, you get the interpretation, I should say, of the passage wrong. Um, we need to be men and women who bring about exegesis. Uh, exegesis, again, EX means out of. We're drawing the meaning out of a passage. Uh, we look at words, we look at the surrounding text. Um, we are really, truly standing upon the context. Context is everything. We're not trying to create a pretext, which a lot of people do when, they're, when they preach and they teach. Uh, you got to be careful of that. We, we want to get in proper exegesis. We want to draw the meaning out of a passage. We've got to look at the words. We've got to look at the surrounding text before and after. We've got to understand where certain stories begin and where they end. Uh, maybe why they're run-on stories. Why did Jesus go from one thing to the next? Sometimes it completely changes. Sometimes it's to build upon what he's already talking about. Sometimes it is point to certain things. So, so we really got to be careful with that. We don't want to fall into eisegesis. Now, the word ice, E-I-S, or yeah, E-I-S means into. We don't want to read our own meaning into the passage, our own opinions, our own ideas, our own biases, etc. We really want to come to the table finding out what not only God said, but why he said it. What is going on? So evaluating the context is of the utmost importance. Uh, and last but not least, we'll come to the application. And some would say, how can I apply it to my life? Um, you know, how could I use this? Because obviously the time in which this was written or spoken I don't live in Jerusalem. I don't live in this part of the country. Things were different, you know, culturally, historically, everything. You know, how do I do this? Well, the bottom line is this application really is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will apply it to your life. You study it, you come up, and you understand what God has said and why he has said it. The Holy Spirit will bring about the application. Because there is that which we can apply to our lives. Every one of us is at different stages and places in our walk with the Lord. We're in different circumstances and situations in life. Uh, different things are happening to us. So um, we got to be careful with application. Uh, there are some preachers and teachers want to put an application blanket over everyone. And I think in some incidences, we probably can to some degree. But really, application is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, not the meaning or the interpretation of the passage to get the correct meaning. There's only one true interpretation. Now, there may be many principles within a passage that we can learn from, and I really believe that that's where also application by the Holy Spirit will take place. But there's only one true biblical interpretation, and this is where we're, we're really today— um, because of what I've told you, we're, we're in trouble. You get people spiritualizing. You get people uh, eisegeting the text. They, they're putting their own thoughts, their own opinions, their own biases, their own meaning into a passage. Uh, you have people say, well, that's not relevant for today because that was back then. Culture's dead. I mean, we, we, go, we hear all kinds of things. You have people speaking or talking about parables, and they're not telling 
what Jesus actually taught, the reason why he taught parables. Uh, so to people, it's just good stories to make people feel good, to encourage them. I mean, you hear all kind of things that are just not true. So I want to encourage you to be careful in this and to realize, again, observation, interpretation, evaluation, then ultimately application. And again, we need to be men and women of the Word. I know that I've given you a lot today during this podcast, maybe more than I should have. I threw an awful lot at you, but I hope and pray that you will use it uh, for God and for His glory, and I mean it, because truly, we need to be men and women of the Word. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Until next time, have a blessed day. Don't you feel as though if we're saved by grace? People shouldn't really get the blues, but it happens. Some I say, oh, but all the best dues we pay. What the people need is make a joyful shout. Toxic blues and use our sounds. Probably get the message in the good news.